Reimagining the INGO. We hear a lot of calls to do exactly that in the last couple of years. Not for the first time, for sure. We have been here before. But this time, the wave of attention, the volume of the voices who call for this, and the number of INGOs, boards, and funders who appear to be paying attention is bigger than before. So maybe, just maybe, we may be somewhere partway on a serious journey. Somebody who pays serious attention to this is Charles Kojo van Dijk at the West Africa Civil Society Institute, or WAXI. He and his colleagues at WAXI are among the main drivers, and in fact now the primary coordinator, behind the RINGO project, the Reimagining the INGO project. RINGO is one of the main drivers behind the wave that I just mentioned. Charles is also the host of the podcast Alternative Convos, which you absolutely must give a listen to. And he thinks deeply, not just about INGOs, but also about alternative views on development more broadly. In this episode, we cover it all. Enjoy and get some new perspectives. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfeiken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. listeners, this is NGO Soul and Strategy, and this is Tosca. I am interviewing today somebody who I've wanted to interview for quite a while. Charles Kojo van Dijk and I met virtually in the context of the Ringo Project, which is the reimagining the NGO, the INGO project. And uh, uh, Charles is going to tell us in a moment all about that project. And I have attended several of the virtual sessions of the Ringo Project. And in the context of that, we've been messaging to comment, to exchange comments on some of the early findings of the Ringo Project. This is a little while ago. And it was clear to me that I needed to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Charles on the state of international development, but particularly the need for alternative framings for this sector and particularly within that, the state of both Southern civil society actors and those of what I call Global North INGOs, and how he thinks that the role of those Global North INGOs and their behavior most likely needs to change. So there we go. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tosca. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. 
Same here. Same here. So let us, listeners, let me tell you a little bit about Charles. He's a development practitioner based in Ghana, and he's on a mission to drive transformative change within civil society. He's the head and has been the head of capacity development at the West Africa Civil Society Institute, or WACSI, W-A-C-S-I, looked him up, and he has been in that role for quite a long time, 15 years. He is a core team member of the Reimagining the INGO project or Ringo project. He's a founding uh, member also. He was in his past of the International Consortium on Closing Civic Space, a trustee of Intrac and an advisory board member of Disrupt Development. And he is the host of a podcast that I strongly recommend you subscribe to, which is called Alternative Convos. And that focuses on social cohesion as well as social change in Africa. And you can find that podcast amongst others on Spotify. Uh, we will be sure to link to it in the show notes. So, Charles, that's a lot we have to talk about. So tell us first yeah. about WACSI, the West African Civil Society Institute, and your role in that. Yes. So, yes, WACSI, which is the West Africa Civil Society Institute, we're based out of Accra. We are a regional organization. It's a civil society strengthening facility. Uh, we work uh, in the region to strengthen civil society, for civil society to contribute to a peace and prosperous region. Uh, so we look at strengthening civil society in terms of its organizational strengthening, its institutional strengthening, uh, we also look at providing technology uh, support, uh, but we are also concerned about the enabling environment for civil society. So we also work on issues like civic space, um, legal and regulatory uh, um, strengthening and influencing. Um, we also uh, work on issues of thought leadership uh, and issues that uh, influence the way development is done. Right. And so that's why we've been working uh, on Ringo. Uh, we have quite a big scope <laughs> geographically yeah. because uh, ECOWAS covers like 15 countries and we cover those countries plus Cameroon, Chad and Mauritania. So that's what's that's Waxi, And your role is to head up the capacity development unit. And I think it flows naturally from what you just said, how you introduced Waxi as a whole. But anything about your role specifically you'd like to add? Yeah, so I I I I lead the capacity development efforts in in the unit. Uh, that means uh, basically all the work that is directly uh, has to do with issues on training, on technical assistance, which could be uh, creating learning and sharing opportunities, uh, coaching, uh, mentoring, peer to peer exchanges, uh, and so the, I lead those efforts. And some of those efforts can be either national efforts, mm -hmm. depending on the scope of a project, or regional or even international efforts. Right, right. Oh, some other time, you and I, I hope we can have a conversation about the how-to of coaching and mentoring, etc. I'd love no, that. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love Before we go on, let me ask you one more descriptive question, and that is, of course, about the Ringo Project, right? It's it's one of the many things that Waxki uh, leads. Um and 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 coordinates and facilitates. So 
a lot of people in our sector know about the Ringo project, but there will be listeners who do not yet. So tell us, what is the Ringo or Reimagining INGO project? What's the mission? And out of what impetus was it born? And what's your, your role in it? Fantastic question. I mean, many of us who worked in the development space um, realized that uh, something had to change. The way we are doing development was not leading to the outcomes that we want. Uh, what we saw was that, you know, poverty was increasing, inequality was increasing. There was a lot of discontent in communities. And so we realized that there's a need to look at the whole aid architecture. I mean, this is where Ringo came in. How do we start a process that can help or contribute to transforming global civil society? Just looking beyond the institutions, but looking at the whole ecosystem. And so we decided that, look, we need a pivot, and that pivot will be INGOs. Just because of the nature of INGOs in terms of their influence and in terms of the work that they have done in the global south. And so we came up with the reimagining INGOs, Systems Change Lab. Uh, what we did is we brought together practitioners, uh, we brought together academics, we also brought together people who've worked in either funding spaces or corporation spaces into a social lab. I think initially it was 55 people, basically to interrogate what are the areas of stuckness in this? What are we challenged with? What are the issues? Why are we not being able to, 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 to uh, uh, respond to the world's greatest challenges when in poverty and inequality. And, and also we, we listed several areas, including structural racism, issues with resource flows, issues with partnerships between INGOs and national organizations, issues with impact measurement, accountability, risk sharing. And, and, and we interrogated on how to respond to those issues. So we went through a process of two years at the end of that two years, there were certain prototypes that came out of that process, innovation or alternative models that came out of that process. And also what we were able to do was to build a huge community. We are now almost 2,000. Wow. Um, Ringo community, yes, um, which, which, which has been uh, amazing to build a real community and also put a lot of these issues on the agenda. Uh, and so that's basically what Ringo has been doing. Currently, we are on the phase two of Ringo, which is more of an advocacy and influencing uh, effort that we are pursuing. I know, including towards boards, right, as well as fu funders. Absolutely, absolutely. Legs. And what's your role in it, uh, Charles, in Ringo? Yeah, so I've, I've been a core team member. So a core team member um, is are those of us who initially are the enablers of Ringo. Um, so they are uh, uh, Waxi, I, you know, as an institution, Rios partners, mm -hmm. and then we have other colleagues who are independent consultants who have a lot of experience uh, in the sector. Uh, Deborah Doen, uh, Sparkle Richards, uh, Je Jenny uh, uh, from Impact Works, uh, Janet Mawio, um, um, so and and our colleagues from uh, Rios I mentioned, Rebecca Akanimo, etc. Uh, and and these, this makes up the team. It's a very interesting team, very diverse, and it was a it was deliberately curated that way right. for us to be able to stretch out uh, because we realized that this is an effort 
which is global. And, and so it needs a certain global uh, representation. Uh, one of the things we, we also realized was that we are not the only ones who are doing this kind of work. No. Uh, there, were in, there were so many efforts before yeah. And there are still efforts ongoing, oh, totally. either sector or, or, or INGOs themselves. But yeah. we see ourselves as the garden, as the as the ones that are kind of nurturing all the efforts or bringing everybody together. So we want to create that beautiful orchard where there's great soil uh, so that all the efforts can grow because all the efforts are are, are connected. Connected, yes, and I, I loved that image of the garden that was introduced in, in slides also before. We'll return to what's your analysis on on um, on the successes and so far stuckness within what Ringo is doing in a moment. But I want to first turn to you and your identity as a development practitioner. You, as I said, you have this mission to drive transformative change, to spur yeah. alternative framings for development and development aid um, and social change. So I'm curious, when and why did you start thinking yourself as an individual actor that there were some structural things wrong in, yeah. in development aid, but particularly within the relationship between Global North founded INGOs and Global South CSOs? Yeah, excellent question. Um, so I, you know, when I began to work in this space, one of the first things I, I noticed was that a lot of the work that we were doing was a lot more focused on implementation of projects. What I realized it was a very projectile kind of, yeah. Uh, and I used to ask myself questions and I asked myself, look, if we're doing things to respond to our community challenges, why are we not part of the decision making? Why are we not part of the conceptual framing, the design thinking that goes into these projects? And that's why I started to realize that, you know, there's just something wrong about the way development was being done. Uh, all of a sudden, what we became as national and local organizations or regional organizations in this part of the, the world were subcontractors. Yeah. And and I, I realized that the relationship was extremely transactional. So basically we were getting partners from Global North. They partner us because we have the community connections and possibly also the knowledge of the terrain yeah. and to execute a certain agenda. And that agenda may not necessarily align with what we wanted to do or what the community actually needed. And that's when I started to ask a lot of questions about why has it, why are the partnerships so transactional? Why is it that the partnership does not go beyond a funding relationship? Uh, why is, why, why, why are the resource flow so ad hoc? Why are they so short term? Hmm. Um, that they, you know, there's so much emphasis on funding projects, but not funding those who are actually implementing the projects, the vehicles, I'm talking about the resources, the human being, and the other resources that they need to uh, implement these projects. Why is it that funding is tied to so much conditions? Why is the reporting so bureaucratic and restricted? And then, you know, other questions like, uh, why, whose impact are we looking at? Is it the impact from the point of view of communities? 
or the impact from the point of view of the implementers or those who are providing us funding. So then I started to realize that, no, this system um, is not a system that will actually help in a sustainable way. So I, I started to ask questions about what can I do? Mm. Uh, how do I start to change things? And so I got more into thought leadership, writing articles and, you know, getting into spaces, speaking engagements and, you know, trying to put our own thinking and perspectives out there. When we started talking about some of these things, it wasn't popular. I mean, this is about 10 years ago. I always say it wasn't sexy enough. Nobody yeah. was really listening. And then COVID came because COVID was a great revealer of, of what was already there. It brought everything to the surface. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, this is what uh, uh, drove me. And I was, I'm really happy now because there's so much attention on locally-led development, on yeah. community-led development, on shift the power. Uh, and thanks to COVID, but also thanks to the movements, yeah, uh, Black Lives Matter, except yeah. uh, for really putting an impetus on, on these issues. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That was very helpful to see your journey of thinking and then to and and action. Um, within this, I'd love to talk for a moment about one of your episodes in, again, the podcast is called Alternative Convos. I recommend it. Yes. <laughs> that is the episode that is about decolonizing the mind, our minds. Yes. Your guest, uh, Cherno Ba, of the organization Purposeful in Sierra Leone, um, talked about this in a very thoughtful and also provocative podcast episode in April of 2023. And he talked about both people who work in Global North founded development agencies, and in my past, I was most definitely one of those, as well as people in CSOs in what some now call the global majority of countries, that they have been socialized into colonial mindsets. Absolutely. I found that a very helpful. Uh, he was really, really good in pinpointing some of these aspects of colonial mindsets. So tell us a little bit more, uh, Charles, from your perspective, which mindsets most need to be decolonized when it comes to the relationship between Global South CSOs and Global North founded uh, INGOs? I think one of the basic things is the idea that knowledge has to come from somewhere to us. The capacity is somewhere and it has to be transferred to us mm. in the global South. I think it's one of the biggest challenges we have. There's a lot of indigenous knowledge. There's a lot of knowledge here. There's a lot of experience here. And I believe that if we are looking at a global civil society or going beyond colonialism, we should be looking at how do we actually share and exchange this knowledge and not that the, the idea that the knowledge from the global south is sacrosanct and that our knowledge it doesn't even exist or even sometimes is not even recognized. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. So even when you go now online, um, years ago, a lot of the text on development, on, on, on methodology, on issues, on project management was coming from the global north. It has improved now. You have a lot of academics but also practitioners from the global south now writing and yeah. you know putting out their experiences out there. But it's still not enough. We still need to capture the indigenous ways of doing things. How do we take all of that? You know, indigenous ways of governance, leadership, 
measuring impact? How do we take that and make it mainstream, right? And I feel, I feel that is a way of decolonizing, a way of thinking about things, not from outside in, but from inside out. And I believe that's some of the things that uh, Chenel was talking about. And the good thing is that Chenel's organization, they have taken an important step of doing readings. And I think this is where uh, the challenge is. But the question is, what are we reading? There's a lot of texts that were written by some of our own, uh, you know, activists, our own uh, political thought leaders like Kwame Nkrumah, etc., you know, Nyerere. There are things that they wrote about the African development experience mm. that we can go into and look and read and try to understand because it gives us a historical picture of why we are where we are and then what we need to do. Yeah. Sometimes some of these texts are not elevated. They're not part of the thinking. And I believe that this, 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 these are some of the major, major challenges. Another thing which is quite colonial is... Unfortunately, it's the dependency culture. The idea that um, money is the supreme asset. And so what has happened is that the investments that have come in for development have created communities that are dependent because communities are, are not aware that they also have assets. Right. It may not be money, but they have their own assets. They have networks, right? They have um, uh, relationships that... It's an asset. They have skills. And when you quantify all those things, it could be even much more than the money that is coming in. So unfortunately, we've all we've all we've never looked at development from an asset kind of based approach, mm. right? But we've looked at development from a deficit. Um, they are in squalor, they are in poverty, they need help. And and we need to change that kind of mindset. Right. So the mindset needs to change in the global north, but the mindset in the global south also needs to change uh, where we, we, we have confidence in what we have, uh, where we, we, we build our abilities to manage what we have. Right. Right. And, and I'll be actually I intend to return to that in a moment. Um, but now I'd like to and we don't have time to go through everything that the Ringo Project has has done um, in these two years, and you're now entering your third year. Um, but I would like you to jump now to to the current uh, and say, from honest, from your um, candid perspective, what yeah. have you considered so far as the most meaningful outcomes of the Ringo project itself? Where has the project? struggled to have impact so where are the stuckness within what the project is trying to accomplish and what would you have done differently uh as a ringo core team member if you could start all over again excellent i i i think that one of the basic impacts or should i say kind of amazing impacts of ringo is just the awareness mm -hmm. that uh, it has brought in in terms of the spotlight it has put on issues related to the aid architecture. Um, amazing in terms of the scope of that spotlight and and just the way it's been able to influence not just individual INGOs in terms of changes in policy, but also institutional funders. And beyond that, even our own ways of working. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the basic 
uh, impacts in, impacts of, of, of Ringo. Another impact, I think, of, of Ringo is the fact that now you have a situation where most funders, and not just foundations, but also um, bilaterals, right, are talking about locally-led development in a very different way, right? Most funders are now looking at how do we ensure that the partnership that we have or the way we fund will encourage empowering partnerships. Let and, me ask you, if I may interrupt yeah. Charles for a moment. We, I agree, and we've been here before. Yes. Those same actors and Global North founded, I just have said before in earlier waves, well before COVID, right, that they wanted to do partnership different. They wanted to do funding different. That's it, that they wanted to channel more resources directly to Global South, whether it's to governments in the Global South or to, to civil society actors. We've been here before. What makes you think, and I think particularly INGOs are kind of guilty of um, um, talking and feeling very good and feeling very good, very kind of quote unquote holy, uh, virtuous about these things. But the the gap between the espoused model and what the real in um, practice behaviors is can be quite big, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. But what makes you think that this time it's different? Well. I am hopeful that this time is different because I've started to see a certain more urgency. I've started to see uh, a certain more deliberateness in the way things are being done. I've started to see INGOs that are not just talking about decolonizing, but taking steps to look at their policies, um, making sure that they have representations at the highest level of leadership to lead, the, to lead these efforts. I've started to see that that is quite new. I've started to see institutional funders that have come together, not as individual funders, but together as a group and say, we are, we are coming together and we are, we are, we are pledging um, that we are going to make several changes in the way we partner, several changes in the way we measure impact, several changes in the way we communicate the work that we do. This is happening. Uh, I've started to see much more intimate engagement between funders and those of us who are on the ground as activists. Back in the days, there was such a huge gap. Before you even meet a funder, it was tough. You couldn't even have those kind of conversations. Yeah. Now there's a much more intimacy in terms of those relations. There's much more. So you can see that there is a certain um, a stride. There's a certain... And momentum. Yes, momentum. But, of course, you're right that much more should have been done and much more could be done. And we must remember we are we are battling years of historical colonialism. Yeah. Right? We are battling years of structural racism. And this goes to the question you asked of what we thought we could do better. One yeah. of the things I think we, we did it too too well with the rainbow was really put a spotlight on issues on how structural racism is actually at the center of questions of inclusion, equity, and and representation. And so one of the things we are doing now with the board is actually to go through a process like that with board members of INGOs because we realized that that was quite a gap. We mm -hmm. didn't uh, even have a pro prototype that responded to it. And it's for good reason. You know, it, 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 we, 
everybody was navigating it. It was, it, It's an uncomfortable conversation because it has so many implications for the sector. Um, it, 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 a lot of people felt, you know, and there are two schools of thought that felt, look, INGOs have outlived their relevance. They need mm. to go away. Others felt, you need to change the way you engage. And, and we still will want you as partners. So we have those tensions. Uh-huh. Even uh, the, the, the Ringo community in terms, of, in terms of perspectives. But there's definitely the change is happening. Is uh-huh. it happening the way I would wish in terms of speed and concrete result? Probably not. Right. But that is change. Change is always messy. Okay. Uh, but I think I'm, from what I have seen, from where I sit, um, this this is what this these are some of the best times to trigger change in policy and practice. If we don't get it right now, I don't think it will ever change. That's a good one. Uh, I need to write that one. If we don't get it, uh, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. Um, now you and I had an exchange early on when when Ringo first did a survey of what Global South CSOs thought about the quality and nature of their interaction with um, uh, Global North INGOs. The findings were surprisingly mild, in my view, in that that survey. Surprisingly, given what the Ringo project was after, right? So you and I had an exchange on LinkedIn, and I said... This is kind of ironic. Uh, what what's happening here? You had an um, interpretation for those findings. Do you want to just relive that yeah. moment with me for a moment? Yeah, you know, I think it, it's a very interesting thing because I feel a lot of people who are responding were also responding from a place of caution. You know, because we are in a sector where uh, uh, there's a constant thought about resource flows and competition. And so people wanted to be candid, but I think uh, some people were, you know, were careful about how far they would go with their, with their candidness, with their candid responses. And so you could see within some instances, many of the partners said, look, we do want to partner with INGOs, but but we wish they could change certain things. They could change the way they design the programs. Could they involve us more in decision-making, right? We want to partner with you, but we wish, you know, you can look at the reporting requirements. Uh, we want to partner with you, uh, but we wish, you know, you could help us with core funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, many who may have said, oh, Actually, we don't need to partner with you because we actually can do this work. Can you sit in Netherlands and give us the resource and let us do it and yes. stay out of our get out, way? Get out of the they way. Probably would, yes, they were not maybe, uh, they, they didn't feel that that is the way to communicate it. But even, of course. Even even Charles, though, there, this was an anonymous survey. You still yes. feel that that caution was in place at that time. Absolutely. Because you remember, a lot of the work we do is about survival. Uh-huh. You know, we, we're looking at, unfortunately, we've created a very unhealthy competitive environment. A lot of these organizations get their funding from, uh, the, from the global north. And so uh, people try to be measured. But you see, it's also about perspective, right? Generally, some people felt 
that we can't do this work alone, right? We are not ready to do this work alone. We still do need he- the help of our partners in, in the global north, right? Like I told you, there are, there are two schools of thought. On yeah. This. yeah, yeah. Actually, I, let me go there with you. I, I have thought about this for a while. Um, just like, you know, Global North Civil Society is in huge. It's a huge field of actors and ecosystem. It's very diverse in, 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 in terms of size and sectors, of course, but also mindsets and um, philosophies and ideologies, et cetera, et cetera, right? The same is true for Global South Civil Society. Absolutely. The very same. So my question is, do you feel, to what extent do you feel that the Ringo Project, in terms of its Global South constituents, that Mm. in one way or other show up, have a voice, participate actively, uh, whether it's on the prototypes or just uh, giving their opinions, etc. To what extent is that representative? I always found when I used to do work on the Global North INGO site and when they, for instance, were interacting with big global actors, such as mm-hmm. the World Bank in, in my example, in my past, I found that, as is true in any public meeting or forum, that those who are most vocal tend to be the ones that are, that that is a, um, that is a subgroup, if you will, that tend to be most vocal you don't always hear the kind of silent majority. So I guess yeah. my question is, how does that play out in the Ringo project? Do you feel that that your Global South constituents is, is representative of probably the wide range of opinions about the quality of relationships to a, a Global North INGOs? I have no idea. No, that's a really, really good question. So when we began the Ringo process, and if I'm going to be honest, that it was heavily dominated by Global North constituencies. Was it? Um, yes, when we began. But as the community grew and we did more awareness, right. we had Global South come in there. Now there's, a, a, I think, a, a fair balance between South and North. Okay. However, if you ask me whether there's a decent number, a significant number that we would want in terms of representation of types of organizations and movements, I'll say no. We still need more of those voices. But there's a lot of reason for that. I've had opportunities to speak to certain networks and I've asked them, oh, why are you not participating in the Ringo community gatherings? Why are you not? Mm. They said, Charles, it's beautiful work. Okay. But it's almost luxury for us Mm. because we are responding to day-to-day emergency. We have serious issues in in, in our communities that we need to respond to. We have projects to work on. These kind of conversations, yes, but the question we ought to ask ourselves is, how is it going to add value to us? Mm. You know, so there's the skepticism, but there's also the survival issue. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the need to to respond to real life issues on the on on the ground, right? And so, yes, there's a we recognize that. Look, we need to get much more global south. Work. In fact, this whole agenda should be driven by the global south. Right. It's actually should be a global uh, a south, south south agenda. Mm-hmm. But you find that in, in this global south space, there's a certain priority for certain things. People uh, in the humanitarian space are facing serious issues that they are responding to. So you can invite them to these conversations and they can participate once a while, 
but the commitment level may not be the way you want because this is not something that is their focus for a, on, on a daily basis. Got it. However, they can't afford to. Yes, they can't afford to. However, they do want the change to happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when the change happens, they know that there'll be direct beneficiaries, but they also realize that the change is so much embedded, you know, in a structural system that's going to be difficult to dismantle. So we are also fighting as Ringo enablers. We are fighting to overcome skepticism. We are fighting to overcome cynicism, right? And, and so what we are doing, and we always say it's kind of like a movement. In, in as much as we are influencing, it's also about engaging hearts and minds. Who have asked the same question, Charles, what makes this time different? Mm. You know, it's a very basic question. And we, and then I have to respond and say, look at what is happening around you. Mm -hmm. if, this is it. Because if you look at all the things that's happening around, you must understand that this is the time for this. There's no better time for this. But it will take time, I believe, to mobilize the voices. Yeah, yeah. And those global South civil society organizations who are um, who are content with their relationship with global North INGOs, who are truly yes. content and not self-censoring, right? Important yes. caveat. Um, what are they content about? What makes them content? Is that about all the qualities that you highlighted already before that they're uh, right at the front end involved in design of programs and projects that they have equal decision-making or that at least there's a lot of consultation, that their reporting requirements are more meaningful. Flexible, yeah. Meaningful. Is it all those factors? Or is there also a subset of Global South Civil Society who says, I'm fine the way it's going with you guys and uh, Northern INGOs. I don't need much change. Do you, do you encounter those at all? I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, it's like, like you said, it's, it's a very homogeneous group. Um, there's all sorts of differences. Yeah. There's the typical national organizations and the think tanks. There are the guys who are based in the urban areas, the guys who are based in the rural, and everybody has a different perspective. Yeah. Generally, what I've seen is that when there's a certain movement from a transactional relationship with a partner yeah. to yeah. a more transformational one. Right. What, what you start to see is that many of the national organizations are much more connected to a specific INGO because they have seen the effort by that INGO to change or to reconfigure the way the partnerships are done. So you talk to a couple of them and say, oh, because of Ringo now, guess what? We, we were never part of the steering committee of the thing. Now I've been invited to be part of the steering committee of a program that is being designed in the Netherlands by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Mm. That's different. They're like, wow, okay. Wow, you guys, are, this Ringo thing is shifted. different. Because I would never have dreamt that they would even invite me to get my ideas and to be mm. part of shaping this. So this is happening. Um, what you realize that, look, uh, a lot more people are funding, are giving funding and recognizing the efforts of the competencies that people have, right? That, that, that means core funding. The, the people are, are doing sustainability grants. So they are concerned about the financial health of their partners, helping them to diversify, 
And so when you start to see some of these pointers, you realize that with those organizations or groups that are receiving this, yes, they have a much more healthy relationship with the INGO. Or in many instances, the INGOs used to be the prime awardee, the lead. And they say, no, we're not doing that anymore. All the next project, we're going to be sub. We're giving the prime to you. You're going to be the budget holder. You're going to do the reporting. And, and it's happening. Some INGOs are taking these steps with their partner. So that's really, that's yes. so, so people feel like they're being respected. People feel they're being recognized for the work that they do. So then they have a much healthier relationship. And of course, the reverse is also true, where... If this relationship is not changing, you still hear a lot of the frustration. Of of Yeah, yeah. So what do Global South CSOs need to change in their policies, in their institutions, in their ways of working and in their culture, organizational culture, I mean, to recalibrate their power relationships with Global North uh, INGOs? What's what needs to happen on that side of the equation? Fantastic, fantastic. I think there needs to be a lot more thought and investment in talent management. A lot more thought and investment in succession planning. Why is right? that? Um, because we are at a certain convergence, or should I say crucible, where we have almost three generations in the sector. So there are generational differences. Right. We had founder yeah. executive directors who are now retiring. Right. So there needs to be a new crop of people who are prepared to take up these institutions and to take them to another to another elevate. Yeah. Right. So are they really being prepared deliberately? Right. Is there clarity in terms of succession and really grooming people for those positions? That's one of the biggest challenges we have. Interesting. In Interesting that you're highlighting that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a major challenge. Mm. Then the challenge of skill. Uh, and what do I mean by skill? There are certain skills that are now needed more than ever. Right now, there are multi-stakeholder engagement skills because now you can't just be in your own cocoon. You have to know how to engage with the private sector, with government. You need to engage beyond your own uh, sector. So, for example, if you're in social justice, how do you engage with the environmental groups? How do you engage with humanitarian? You need those kind of skills. You also need uh, tech skills. I mean, at this point, you need a lot of tech uh, skills. Yeah. So there are certain skills that are needed um, that a lot of organizations are still struggling to, 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 to ensure that they, they, their staff have skills. And then, of course, managing talent. And that also becomes a big problem. Because, you know, you hear from a lot of national organizations that we groom people and then they are poached either by development yeah. agencies or by INGOs. And I think sometimes, yeah, it's true. They leave because of the financial rewards. That's true. But most of the times, when I, from what I have seen working in this space on organizational strengthening, they leave because of a disenabling environment within their organizations. Yeah. Right? You don't find that they are growing in that right. state. They don't find that they are given the oxygen to innovate you know, to come up with new ideas. They don't find that they are being listened to, right? So it ties in what you were saying. A need, a need to look at our culture, right? A culture 
where we move from command and control to much more a culture of the ability of leaders to influence others. Mm. Right? Um, we still have those challenges of command and control and not leadership by, by, by influence. And those are the kind of things that at WACSI we've been working on year in and year out because we recognize that these are the most important. And it's, it's important for us because we need to make sure that our institutions are strong. And are ready. Yes. And yeah. And are sustainable and are ready to lead from exactly. the front. Exactly. And that is, yeah. that is what we are working on. Yeah. So glad I asked you that question. Um, we're almost out of time, but I, I cannot help, but I want to go back to one of your other podcast episodes. And yeah. in that, you commented by yourself, um, meaning you didn't have an interviewee in that particular episode, on leadership development approaches. And as you know, you and I both have okay. a strong interest in that, right? And how some of these leadership development approaches often very strongly global north normed, if you will, um, how those models and approaches for leadership development are inefficient, meaning that they are, it's not that they are not helpful, but to a certain limit. And you said they have to be more informed by, and I'm not quoting here, but paraphrasing by the social context of the communities where leaders are serving Mm-hmm. And that those same leaders need to be more explicitly focused on being in touch with those communities. Absolutely. So where do you feel the kind of global north normed and often white normed leadership development approaches still have validity? Where are they lacking and how do they need to be complemented? Yeah. And so a typical leadership program will tell you that you need to get competencies. And how do you do that? You need knowledge, you need skills, and you need to have the right attitude, right? Mm. When you go to a leadership program, this is, is, is something that they say. Then some other leadership programs also say, yes, you can have that, but you need to have character. And the character is about your values, your value system, right? And I believe that there's been a lot of emphasis on competencies, and not so much emphasis on the character in terms of the value system and principles. Mm. Then another missing gap, which is the context and culture, right? Because I believe that for, for, you, for us to really groom effective leaders, they need to understand their context, the way it is, not the way they wish it was. And that is what the challenge is. Because you can go and learn something and think that, no, this is how it should be. Mm-hmm. But you will not get results because it may be like that in Los Angeles, but in Accra, this is how it is. Yeah. You will not like it, but that is the way it is. So uh. we really build the leaders to understand the culture and appreciate why people think the way they think, why people do what they do. Why is it that we have these? Because if you don't understand the why, you can't bring about change. You don't. You can't. Uh, you know, help people to come out of that thinking. Right. right. And so, what we're doing a lot with the leadership here is to get people to really think inside out. So, what is it that we have? What can we take from our own culture that will help us to become excellent and effective leaders? For example, we're very relational. Yeah. Okay, and that is not a weakness. It's actually a strength. We are relational. And that means 
in our culture, there are certain things that need to be asked when you are grooming somebody. If you don't ask about the person's family, if you're not concerned about his well-being or her well-being, you'll probably not get the best out of them. You may have to uh, uh, attend a person's family function. Yeah. It's part of it because we are relational. It's part of our leadership. That is how we lead. Yeah. Right. Here, another thing about us too is that most of the time, okay, we, we, people want to be recognized and not necessarily about re- money, but we are, we, we come from a culture where we, li- we like to be recognized for the efforts that we've made within community. So how do we recognize people in a way to empower them to do positive things, right? To continue to make positive uh, mm. Mm. right? So for, for, for me, I've always been emphasized on, yes, the competencies is good, great knowledge, great skills, get a great education, but you need to also build your values, your principles, but also understand where you are, mm. understand your culture, understand your context, Otherwise, you keep on failing as a leader. You, you will limit yourself. You'll not yes. be able to, to exceed your own uh, environmental limitations. Yeah, yeah. Glad I asked that as well. And it's, it's um, just to our listeners, it makes me think that what uh, Charles just said is a bridge over to some other episodes. One that we've already aired with uh, Adama Koulibaly or Cool from Oxfam. And oh, I, I know him. Great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And one episode that will be recorded soon, it's with Taka Awari, for instance, where I really um, wish to delve deeper in what are non-Global North norms, leadership development models and approaches and frameworks, right? Such as in this case, um, uh, African leadership development models. So I'm, I'm glad I asked that we just touched upon it at the end of the interview, but, um, and we, I may come back to you about this again, Charles, if that's okay with you. But we really do have to get to, to the end of the interview now because we're out of time. So practical last questions. Where should people find out more about you as a development practitioner, about Waxi, about Ringo, and about Alternative Convos, your podcast? Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, I have a, my profile on LinkedIn. So if you type in Charles Kojo Van Dyke, I mean, you'll find out a lot about me. Mm-hmm. Alternative Convos is on Spotify. So if you type in Alternative Convos, C-O-N-V-O-S, Spotify, mm-hmm. Google, it's on Apple, it's on other platforms and you can access it. Uh, you can also access Ringo. Just type in Ringo on Google, Ringo systems change and you know it's 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 you you would be able to access you can go on and, and access waxi w-a-c-f-i.org um, there's a lot of interesting things we're doing at waxi and you're welcome to look at the work we are doing we have uh, amazing projects fantastic colleagues and we invite you all to just get in there and, and get, get in and get in there get your hands get in dirty there and, and, and support the work we are doing yeah great Thank you so much, Charles, for this really yeah. interesting conversation. And I think uh, I would love to have another conversation with you offline about leadership development, like we just said, and go go further in deep, in depth. Listeners, if you found this podcast episode uh, stimulating, then be sure to check out other episodes of my podcast that focus on the aspiration of some INGOs 
and many uh, Global South CSOs to uh, shift power and resources to decolonize international development agendas um, and so on. And so, for instance, on our podcast, there are episodes such as uh, episode 15 and as well as the whole series we have going on on feminist leadership that you may find of interest. These are all, you can find them on my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org with the number five or on my YouTube channel. And one of the things that I just wanted to highlight before signing off is that uh, I just introduced a new um, offer and that is an advisory call. So if you want to get some input, some um, some advice, but you don't have the budget right now or the time uh, to engage in a longer consultation project with me, you can now book a one-off advisory call with me directly through my website. So again, fiveoaksconsulting.org. Subscribe to my email list and you'll always be the first to know about upcoming podcast episodes such as this terrific one. And with that, this is Tosca, and I look forward to spending more time with you on NGO, Soul, and Strategy next time. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website and follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.